Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, you've shown us the way. You've made the way to eternal life for all of us who would believe. And Lord, you have given us uh, your spirit. You did not leave us as orphans, but have given us your spirit as a comforter, a, a counselor. And so we ask, Spirit, would you come? Come, Holy Spirit, come and, and fill every space where we are seated right now. Fill each one of us to overflowing. And Lord, speak through me now that my words would be your words and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, um, it's probably the earliest concept that any of us ever learn. It's the most basic concept of pretty much every major uh, study, metaphysics. It's the, the most basic concept of ontology, of epistemology, of sociology, of psychology, and I'm sure of many other ologies. I'm talking about causality. That is the, the law of cause and effect. So from the moment we, we draw breath from this side of the womb, we are being educated in cause and effect. And as such, we live by what we learn. And under healthy circumstances, that education helps us to uh, effectively negotiate the world in which we live. And without, though, that healthy environment, um, we still learn cause and effect um, but perhaps not in such a way that we can negotiate the world well. So, for example, most babies learn that uh, if they are troubled by anything, whether it's they're tired or they're wet or they're cold or they're hungry, they learn that if they cry, a parent or a caregiver will come to their aid and attend to what troubles them. But if you walk through the halls of an orphanage, you will be struck by how quiet it is. And that's not because the babies don't have troubles. They have plenty. But they've not learned the cause and effect lesson that if you cry, someone will come to your aid. And so they don't cry. When we adopted our children, um, much of the early days that we spent with them after we got home were spent giving them fast-track lessons of cause and effect. Um, lessons that I would call uh, if-then uh, lessons. Um, if you do this, then this will happen. And sometimes we didn't get to them in time before the realities of the world were teaching them these uh, same lessons. And so we bandaged cuts from knives they had never seen before and put ice on burns from pots in a room called the kitchen, a room that they didn't even know existed in the baby homes. But the most important lesson of causality that we ever taught them and we continue to teach them isn't uh, the if-then kind of lesson. It's actually what I would call a since-then lesson. It's the since-then lesson of unconditional love. Since we love you unconditionally, then there is nothing you can do to make us love you any less. There's nothing you can do to make us love you any more. 
In other words, it is a lesson within causality which states that certain things can actually affect cause and effect. So in that room called the kitchen, since you are wearing the oven mitt, then you can take hold of the hot panhandle and and you won't experience the effect of a burned hand. And unconditional love kind of works like that, that oven mitt. You know, I was uh, talking to a friend the other day who's an expert in pedagogy. She's an experienced teacher and curriculum writer. And um, so I was bemoaning what a tough time I was having with homeschooling my children. And, and you know, I've done a fair amount of teaching in, in my career over the years. Uh, but I have been failing miserably as a homeschool teacher of my kindergartner, no less. You know, I, I've been failing on how to teach him how to count money and to make a proper lowercase letter G. Um, and, and so my friend, she told me, she said, the reason that homeschooling can be so difficult for parents uh, is actually that there's an unconditional love in the relationship. And so children know that even if they don't perform uh, in their schooling, well, their parents aren't going to stop loving them. Now, a teacher at school may be very loving, but that teacher, she or he, isn't mom or dad, and so so the assumption of unconditional love just isn't there. And so they do this equation in their heads, these children, and so they perform better in the classroom than they do at home. They think of the unconditional love like the government. Yep, if I don't do well, if I grab hold of this hot pot handle and fail in writing my lowercase g, well, it doesn't really matter. Dad will still love me. And it's true. And that's just a version of causality. It's, it's, it's that uh, unconditional love. And uh, it is the oven mitt. And I loved hearing that from my friend. It was uh, comforting in a certain way. It's also kind of frustrating because I'm still uh, struggling through every packet of math sheets uh, that come from my son's kindergarten teacher. But the end is near. I know it is. So it's causality, this idea that I believe is central to what Peter's doing in his first epistle. We've been making our way through this letter, and uh, today we will be looking at the second chapter in the verses 13 to 25. If you have your own Bible, please open it uh, to those uh, verses, chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. And so causality, it runs throughout the first letter of Peter, and primarily it is the, the kind of since then kind of causality that Peter presents to his readers uh, in this epistle. It's, it's, it's a gospel since then uh, message. He wants his readers to live by that uh, adage. And so looking back over the, the verses that we've already covered, uh, he writes in very matter-of-fact terms uh, what God has done, what he has given to those who believe, those who uh, embrace the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. And this is the since part of it. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Since He, Jesus God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Chapter 1, verse 12. Since the prophets were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you, 
through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Since you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Chapter 2, verse 5. Since you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as, spiritual, as a spiritual house. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Since you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And, and then when we come to our passage for this morning, chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, Peter gives yet more sense statements for the believers. Verse 16, since you are free. And then in verses 21 to 25, he gives what is, I believe, the very heart of his causality message in this letter. And these verses, they actually occupy the, the sort of geographical center of this letter. Um, and they also are the theological center of this letter. Verse 21, since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Um, verses 22 to 24, since Christ is the true suffering servant who himself bore your sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. Since by his wounds you are healed. Since you wandering sheep have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well then, what then? Well, then you can live differently. And he gives multiple examples of how he, we are called, believers are called to live differently. You can prepare your minds for action. You can love one another. You can put away all malice and all deceit. You can abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then in this passage, Peter tells his readers that since all of this is so, then they can, verse 13, for the Lord's sake, be subject to every human institution. Peter is, is giving his readers a picture of how they must, but more importantly, how they can live in a fallen world with all of its suffering, in this case, how they can live in relation to those in authority over them, even those who might be cruel in their opposition to the Christian faith. But let's be clear about what it means to be subject. What it does not mean. Well, it does not mean uh, an endorsement of the authorities. It is not to garner favor from the authorities. It is not to, to stay off the radar of the authorities, i.e. self-preservation. What it is, is it is placing oneself below another out of respect that is expressed in obedience appropriate to that relationship. And so that may be compulsory or it may be voluntary. It is done Always understanding, though, that any authority is only in place under 
the sovereign will of God. So it is more than just avoiding retaliation uh, or, or taking uh, punishment that is just for what one's done. If you've done something wrong and you take the punishment well, Paul, Peter writes, you know, what does that mean? That doesn't mean much of anything. But it is actively seeking opportunities to do good even for an oppressive human institution. And in the case of these readers, oppressive human institution like the Roman Empire, or for some of his readers, an oppressive individual like a slave master. It is done, Peter writes, for the Lord's sake. Which means it is always rooted in the fact that the Lord Jesus himself has suffered And not in a vacuum, but as verse 21 puts it, that he has done it for you. Christ suffered for you. So he did not suffer for suffering's sake, but for the sake of those who were in bondage, so that they might be free. For the sake of those who had strayed from the Father, so that they might be returned to the Father, for the sake of those who were dead in their transgressions, in order that they might be dead to sin and made alive with the risen Christ. And just as Christ's unjust suffering, um, as he was subject to those in authority over him, was a, a gracious thing and had powerful effect, Peter is telling his readers, he's saying to them, the, even as you likewise are going to be and are suffering unjustly for the Lord's sake, well, you're doing a gracious thing. It is a gracious thing and it will have powerful effect. So it's not subjugation for the sake of it. But it is a participation in the subjugation of Christ that brought about salvation. And so the example that Christ gives, is it's not just sort of a, oh, he wants to do this thing, and so therefore, hey, take a look and just copy it. No, it's actually, he's actually making a way forward. It's almost more like a school teacher who writes the example problem up on the board with the full answer in it incorporated so that you can participate in solving the same problem. Since Christ saved you through his suffering in subjugation to the authorities in Jerusalem, then you can be subject to the authorities over you and know that it is in the sight of God. It will not disappear into the murky mess of government or slavery even. But it will be seen by your Father in heaven, the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And what he will see is Christ-like. So this is Peter's way, I think, of of communicating what St. Paul also communicates in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, when he writes, "Um, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism 
into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul and Peter both understood the newness of life that one receives in Christ Jesus, and it changes everything. It changes everything about the perspective one has in this world. What one might be prepared to do. It is the ultimate cause and effect lesson. If you die with Christ, then you will rise with Christ. Since you have died with Christ, then you will rise with Christ. And see how that does transform how you live from this day forward. In relation to those in authority. Whether it's a person that is your boss at work, or it's, maybe it's your parents, or maybe it's the government. How it is in relation to a hidden and extremely contagious and deadly virus. It does not overtake us. We face it in the sight of our God. In relation to struggling economic uh, outlook, in the face of unemployment, in the face of cabin fever, of, of broken relationships and, and, and struggle and, and pain and anger and, and all of those things in relation to everything. This, since then, um, causality of the gospel, it's essential. Like the greatest oven mitten we could ever imagine that covers us, protects us preserves us as we face the fallenness of this world. And he, he promised it. He promised it to us. He saw us, we like a child crying, troubled, needing a caregiver to come to our aid. And it did what it was supposed to do. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Of course, Thomas, the, <laughs> the great doubter, uh, asked the question that everyone was thinking, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's made a way. If Christ has died for us, then we can die with him. If Christ has risen from the dead, then we can rise with him. And we can face whatever comes. The causality, it's transformed. Amen.